This episode is brought to you by CRPS Warriors Foundation. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seat. The show is about to start. Hey guys, what's up? This is Phoebe. This is Mike. This is episode number 25 of the Mike and Phoebe show. And today in the series of CRPS Warriors Foundation, we have Dr. Damien Daphne calling in. He's calling in from the Complete Foot and Ankle Care Center of North Texas out of Denton. He also does a reconstructive foot and ankle surgery, subspecializing in the peripheral nerve injury. He is also an author of Saving Limbs and Saving Lives, Advanced Treatments for Preventing Amputations in Diabetic Populations. And he is also a podcaster, fellow podcaster. Podcast that he runs is called The Podcast Doctors. And he is the president and managing partner of the Complete Foot and Ankle Care Center of North Texas. Welcome, Dr. Daphne. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So love talking to fellow podcasters. Absolutely. When we saw in the intro email from uh, Deb Jankowski, love you, Deb. Uh, we were very excited to see that you were a podcaster. Yeah. And so we were very excited to talk to you and especially talk to you about CRPS. Absolutely. Now, uh, tell me, uh, what is what is it about CRPS, uh, complex regional pain syndrome, and the subtle differences between type 1 and type 2? When you just mentioned that, I, you know, my limited uh, knowledge of CRPS is just based on what we've learned in the last uh, couple months now. Yeah. And I had no idea that there was a type 1 and type 2. So um, tell us about that. Well, originally, the terms that were used for this problem are reflex sympathetic dystrophy, uh, RSD, and that's really what type 1 um, is called now. So the CRPS type 1 used to be called reflex sympathetic dystrophy. And CRPS type 2 is formerly known as causalgia. And those terms are still very confusing, even in uh, the medical uh, literature now. CRPS, uh, the complex regional pain syndrome classification system came out a couple of decades ago. And so it, it tried to help standardize subtle differences between the two and I think it's done a reasonably good job of that, but I, I still think um, it's still very difficult, even for physicians, to fully understand some of these um, patients and their and how they fit into the classification system. But originally, uh, when when this came out in 1994, there were four specific boxes you needed to check to call something CRPS. So one was the presence of some sort of noxious event. And what we mean by that is some sort of injury. Could be something as simple as an ankle sprain um, or some type of long-term immobilization. So somebody who had maybe had a surgery and was immobilized for several months, and that could have been the, the, the indicating uh, initial injury. Number two, they needed to have continuous pain. They needed to have uh, allodynia. Allodynia is the term for painful response to something that shouldn't be painful. So if I stroke your skin with a cotton cotton ball, that's clearly not painful for anybody who doesn't have CRPS. But if you have CRPS, just simply stroking your skin with a cotton ball could be painful. And the other term that it goes along with this second category of the, the uh, criteria is hyperalgesia. And hyperalgesia would be 
a term for something that it that sh that does cause pain, but the response is so far above what you would typically see with that particular injury. So with an ankle sprain, uh, for example, you may have you may have acute pain for two or three days, but it, it shouldn't be so far off the off, you know off the reservation that you need to you know maybe go back to the ER three times for pain relievers something that's very above the normal response for that particular injury. So we call that disproportional to the supposed inciting event, something that's way above what you would typically expect. The third criteria would be evidence of any time of swelling or blood flow changes in the skin, something called pseudomotor abnormalities. This would be abnormalities with sweating, uh, with the uh, hair growth uh, on the limb. And then the, the last would be an absence of any other condition that would explain the symptoms. And so that was the original criteria for complex regional pain syndrome. And then they broke it down into type one and type two. Type two, the main difference is that type two, people of CRPS type two, there's a specific nerve injury involved. So there was either a laceration of a nerve or a compression or, or a contusion to a nerve. And so those folks, we can always fall back on a specific nerve branch that got injured. And that and you could have their symptoms go beyond the distribution of that nerve, but it's still very, it's pretty evident that they had a nerve injury. And so those are actually uh, easier to treat in my in my estimation, because you can you can narrow down the nerve that's involved. You can try to do things to help that nerve recover. The type one folks, you, there's only a certain number of things that you can do. Uh, to improve their situation acutely, and then then you hope over time it's going to burn itself out and and they'll be able to recover. Uh, they may always be susceptible after injuries, but but hopefully within two years, typically people who have type one, you know, this kind of burns itself out. Uh, you know, diagnosing these folks, it's really just a clinical diagnosis. In other words, we have to lay hands on the patient and uh, determine what their symptoms are like, get a good history. But there's no test that we can run that's going to specifically say, oh, this person has CRPS. Uh, you have to listen to their history. There's usually an injury involved. There's usually a period of time where the, where the limb was swollen. You may see these color changes. They start talking about nerve-related pain that's burning, tingling, shooting pain. Um, and when you start to hear all those things in, in conjunction with each other, then you, your brain needs to start thinking, okay, this patient could be developing CRPS. But there's no test that we can run. There's no blood test. Uh, there's all kinds of, of research being done in some of these areas, but there's nothing specific that we have access to today. There's a Budapest criteria that came out a few years ago. This kind of gets into the weeds. I don't think we need to really go into that. It just breaks down these these different symptoms and, and signs that we see with people. Um, but this is specifically occurring in the limbs. It's in the upper extremity or in the lower extremity. Um, much more common in women. It's about four times as common in women as men. And uh, the upper extremity is more common than the lower extremity. Uh, it's still a very rare problem. Uh, type 1, uh, the latest study that I saw, it was about a 10-year study uh, in Minnesota where they looked at uh, the population there. It was about five and a half people per 100,000 person years is the term for the units. Um so it's a pretty rare problem, but when it gets mismanaged, it can be uh, really horrible. Uh, patients often get kicked around in the system until they find somebody who has an interest in this. Pain management doctors, most pain management doctors 
have a pretty decent handle on on CRPS and some things that they have access to that can help. Uh, but you'll still find lots of misinformation. Lots of physicians don't understand uh, what this is and don't understand how to identify it, which is too bad. But it's it's rare enough that uh, you may have gone through, you know, an entire medical school and residency and not really seen enough patients with it to understand how to find, how to how to diagnose. So, so now I've gotten on this <laughs> fifteen minute diatribe. Um, yeah, no, that's okay. I ha- and and sorry to interrupt you, but um, no. I'm writing down a couple of questions that I was just thinking of when you're um, going over all that um, information. Now, if you don't mind my asking, do you know why specifically women are more uh, susceptible to getting, I think, uh, did you say type one or type two in the uh, extremities? Both. Yeah, oh. uh, it, nobody knows. It's oh. just one of the, it's one of the stats that popped up uh, when they look at all these cases. So it's, yeah, that's, that's one of the mysteries. It's really, wow. it's really a very, there's, there's, there's still a lot we don't know. And, and when you look at syndromes like this, where we really don't under, fully understand them, there may be crossovers between this particular problem and people who have fibromyalgia, which again is another thing that happens in women more than men. Um, people who have issues with anxiety and depression are more susceptible. Uh, this problem can cause anxiety and depression, so they they can feed each other, which is really really um, sad and, and unfortunate. Uh, but there are a lot. There seem to be some comorbidities between. CRPS and and depression, people who have chronic headaches, people who uh, unfortunately have drug abuse histories. Um, but you know, I don't want to paint a broad brush, but but definitely things like anxiety, th- things like anxiety and depression, if they're not treated along with this, those patients don't do well. And so I think the psychological factors they can influence the recovery of these patients tremendously, and that that's something that it's difficult because we can wait six months to get somebody in to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist for some of these issues. So uh, there aren't enough of those guys out there, uh, which can make trying to treat these things concurrently very difficult. Yeah, I've definitely found, um, you know, I've been, I went through a few medical issues myself in the past and um, your mental health is extremely important because you're going through this physically, it does affect your mind and your, your healing process. And, um, I went through two surgeries and immediately afterwards, you know, I started walking and I thought, well, why do I need to walk? You know, but it, it increased my circulation along with eating a healthy diet and, you know, trying to just focus on my own healing. And um, it does affect the healing process. And I don't know if a lot of people know that. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's, um, it it gets uh, misinterpreted. I think that that's a really important part of healing. Any, sort of injury, including surgeries. Uh, and like I said, this, this can happen from something as simple as an ankle sprain. But, right. it, but inciting events, uh, things like um, wrist fractures very commonly uh, are, are associated with, with people who end up with CRPS. Um, uh, uh, even co- so something called a Collie's fracture, which is a distal radial fracture. This is outside my realm, but uh, definitely in the, in the literature, um, there may be up to a 30 or 35 percent incidence of CRPS in those folks. That's huge. I mean, that that's a that's a big number. That's a scary number. But orthopedic surgery of the extremities in general has been associated with uh, the occurrence of CRPS, and then other types of trauma. Again, the immobilization. Even people who've had strokes, um, you know, it, it can be a problem. 
so there's there's a couple of different things that people need to look out for. Uh, there's a warm phase or an acute phase where the the limb starts to show signs of inflammation. You get redness, swelling, real tenderness in generalized areas. Uh, it can be a glove or stocking distribution, meaning almost in the same area where you'd have a glove on your hand or a, or a stocking or a sock on your foot. Uh, patients describe like a deep pain. It's not like a real simple ache. It's a deep pain that gets worse with movement, gets worse with temperature changes. This, these are really, if you really listen to the patients who have this, they're telling you exactly what's going on. You just have to be familiar enough with the symptoms and the signs to be able to identify it and refer it on uh, to someone who can help uh, turn it around. The second sort of phase is like a chronic or a cold phase that can happen about six months after all these symptoms began to occur. And that's kind of as the inflammation and the swelling can subside a little bit. But these people, it's more of a persistent pain and even hurts when they're resting. It can get more difficult to treat, definitely more difficult to treat at that point. These these folks can get muscle muscle spasms. You may see some atrophy in the skin, uh, thinning of the skin. They may have, again, hair growth uh, changes. Could be either lack of hair growth on that limb or or increased hair growth. It could be either or, which is kind of weird, but we do see that. And they may also get changes that you might be able to see on an x-ray, so some washing out of the bone marrow uh, or, the, or the bone mineral, sorry. And they could ha- either have increased sweating or decreased sweating, but a, but a change in, in the normal baseline. Uh, and then these people start to develop this fear of moving the, the limb. It's called kinesiophobia, where they don't even want to move it. And so they start, they start becoming, the limb starts to become this stiff, uh, just the stiff swollen mess. And it's, it's really, really tough to treat when it gets to that point. So we want to intervene before that for sure. That's why referring these people on, if you're going to get sued over this, like if you're a surgeon, the, the best way to get sued on one of these cases is to hang on to the patient too long and not refer them out. It's it's really a, a you know it's a it's a lawsuit of omission at that point. So the best thing you can do for these patients is identify it and refer them on to pain management um, or someone uh, you know who's adept at treating these. Right, um, because yeah, yeah, because if the the surgeon or the doctor isn't familiar with um, all the symptoms, then he can't just hang on to them and try to solve the problem. He has to refer out. Or a specialist, yeah. Right, right. And so the patient I saw this morning, uh, literally today, saw a classic CRPS patient that was referred to me from a, a good friend of mine uh, here in here in Dallas. And she's 23 years old. She was a runner. She was a uh, she ran a track in college, and had a fall in the middle of one of her training sessions, and had what's called a Liz Frank fracture. And that's a midfoot fracture between the metatarsals and the tarsals. So she had a fall during a a track training session and her foot sort of folded underneath her. And that's a very common uh, mechanic, uh, mechanical way of breaking the midfoot, but they don't show up on x-ray very commonly initially. It's really frustrating. So she's treated with, you know, like as if she has a sprain for several months, eventually this doesn't do well. She starts having daily pain. So she has surgery to fuse those joints, and which was a completely reasonable thing to do. And after several months, the bones healed, and she still has swelling. She still has pain. She's complaining of burning, shooting, tingling. 
she starts to, to to develop the arthrofibrosis or the or the 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 stiffness in her foot. She doesn't want to move it. It uh, hurts to move it. Uh, weather changes make make it tremendously worse. Even the sheets touching her foot. When you start hearing people complain of the sheets touching my foot gives me pain, they either have gout, <laughs> and twenty three year old women don't get gout, or the, or the, or they're looking at a, a nerve injury of some sort. And so we did a five minute diagnostic block. I put three cc's of marcaine along the superficial fibular nerve, which is a nerve on the front of the ankle that, that does sensory on the top of the foot. After tapping on that nerve and her getting lightning out into her toes, we knew that was one of the pain generators. So I blocked that nerve with three cc's of, of uh, marcaine. And within 15 minutes, she could do things with that foot she couldn't do 15 minutes earlier. So we identified that that one nerve was most likely her pain generator. And that's a sensory nerve that's expendable. If I can take that nerve out, cap it, and plug it into muscle, there's a good chance that she'll have numbness on the top of her foot, but she'll have pain relief. So hmm. there are things we can do when we've identified that it's a CRPS type 2. They have a specific nerve injury. And her nerve injury may have been a traction injury during her original insult. So when she fell and her foot folded under her, she may have stretched that nerve. It's called a traction nerve injury. And that nerve may have scarred in poorly because of that stretching. Nerves do not like to get stretched. So she's a classic example of someone who has been diagnosed with CRPS appropriately, but they didn't really parse it out between CRPS 1 and CRPS 2. And I think that would have helped her several months ago if they had identified that this was truly a nerve injury that we could intervene on. And so hopefully uh, she's going to keep a log of how things go over the next several hours. I fully expect her pain's going to return in three or four hours because the local's going to wear off. And when it does, uh, you know, that'll be fine. We'll be able to address that. But I, what I wanted her to do is make sure she wasn't having the same pain from any other nerves. She can draw with a surgical marker that I gave her little X's where she still has nerve-related pain um, so that we can identify, okay, is this a different branch that could be involved? Because there could be a tibial nerve injury or some other nerve injury that is in a different part of her foot that's causing her pain. But, but literally 15 minutes after we applied that block, she was about 95% pain-free. So we'll see how she does over the next several hours. Wow. That is amazing. What a story. And um, when you wrote down your questions for me to ask you, um, so you're already discussing the neuro neurolysis versus denervous, some big words, versus denervation. So, so no, we haven't gotten into that. So thank you for that. Yes. So neurolysis in, in, in terms of a surgery that everybody seems to understand is it's neurolysis is what you're doing with carpal tunnel release. So everybody's heard of carpal tunnel, carpal tunnel surgery. What, what that involves is, is the median nerve in the wrist and a tiny ligament that goes over the nerve. That's, that's literally tethered, tethering the nerve or injuring the nerve by compression, compressing it. So hand surgeons will go in and release that ligament. They're not doing anything to injure the nerve. They just want that ligament to be gone so that the nerve has more room. That, that particular surgery is one of the most successful surgeries on the planet. So we know that you can do a nerve decompression on a nerve that's entrapped, and we call that a neurolysis. 
surgical neurolysis. And that works very well in other parts of the body too. We do that in the lower extremity all the time. We do tarsal tunnel releases. We'll do superficial fibular neurolysis or deep fibular neurolysis. So if we can identify that this particular patient, that her nerve is entrapped in scar tissue or the tissues around it have become thickened and are causing a distinct nerve entrapment, we can decompress that nerve. We can also look at the nerve under the microscope or, or with high-powered loops and be able to see if the wrapping around the nerve called the epineurium is translucent. If we can see through it, that means it's not scarred. If it's opaque and it's rubbery, then that nerve may need to be destroyed. You may need to cut that above the, the injured section, cap it, and plug it into muscle. Or if it's a, a section of nerve that's less than seven centimeters, we can actually take that piece out and we can graft in uh, something called uh, Avance graft or a, a decellularized cadaveric nerve. It's a nerve that's taken from cadavers uh, that has been studied to make sure it's not uh, got any infectious uh, diseases. And then they wash out all the cells. And so it's just the internal architecture of the nerve. We can use that as a graft and connect the two ends of the nerve with the, the scarred nerve removed. And that can be another way to address these problems if we can identify a very specific section of the nerve that's been injured. And traction injuries can cause that type of scarring. So we'll, we'll have all those options available if we decide to operate on this young lady. Um, and you know, if, if we can just decompress the nerve, clearly that's uh, the best option. And then we'll always wrap the nerves with some sort of uh, nerve wrap that will protect it from scarring. And our, our go-to right now is cryopreserved umbilical cord. So it's actual umbilical cord from uh, C-sections and normal, normal C-sections. And, and th those women have been studied again for all infectious diseases. And they are able to process and, and freeze uh, this tissue. And it's amazing for wound healing. It's amazing for nerve healing. So we'll wrap nerves to protect them from scarring and then provide uh, nerve growth factors that'll help the nerve heal. Wow. So denervation is, is just the term for taking the nerve out. So that's the, uh, that's the distinction between neurolysis, which is decompression, uh, where you're not trying to do anything to injure the nerve, and then denervation, where the branch, the nerve is just so far gone, you've got to take it out. So I know that uh, you've uh, just seen this uh, young lady earlier today. Um, but what kind of, kind of classification would you actually uh, consider her? Uh, or two. I think after the injection, we'd have to call her a CRPS type two. So she's got a distinct nerve injury. She's got one branch that's her pain generator. So if we had done that block and then she's going to keep a log and let's say we, we talked to her on Monday and her log is basically saying, yeah, I got about 10% of pain relief from the injection, but the rest of my foot is still killing. me, And she's still describing the same swelling, uh, color changes, uh, burning, stinging, shooting pain, then, then I would have to assume that either we have multiple nerves involved or she's probably CRPS type 1, and we may need to manage her medically because there may be no no good uh, surgical option. Oh, okay. So one question I did have while you were talking about type 1 and type 2, uh, from what it sounds like, your description, uh, patients who have type 1 won't have type 2 is that correct? Or would they be able to have the both one and two? Typically, the type two folks, we can positively identify either from their history uh, or from diagnostic blocks 
that they truly have a nerve injury, that there's a specific nerve that is that is problematic, uh, which which makes makes it di- differentiating from the, the folks with type one. There, and that's the hard part. Is there is that a uh, you know, tried and true way of determining one from the other? In most cases, it is, uh, but it but it's difficult. I think you can have patients who don't respond to surgery, and then you're like, well, okay, they may have had more uh, type one than, than we felt. But I, I really think that if you can do a nerve block on one branch, uh, that that's a type two patient um, every time. So I think the problem with CRPS is people can get thrown into that category. Then people just stop doing any more diagnostics. They don't they don't look for that patient who might have a true nerve injury and could benefit from surgery. So I think that's the part that's sad, uh, that, that once you get diagnosed with CRPS, I think in some, in some schools of thought that, that really no one's looking for, for uh, the potential for a nerve injury that, that may be driving all of this. And that, that, I think that's where there are a fair number of CRPS patients that are out there being treated uh, medically for their problem, and then everybody's just hoping that it burns itself out uh, when they might have benefited from a little more investigation uh, to see if they had a nerve injury that was involved. So now, if a patient has been diagnosed with type 2 CRPS, can that eventually merge into type 1? Because from what you, your description is, type 2 is not as severe. Oh, I wouldn't, I, no, I wouldn't call that, I wouldn't say it's not as severe at all. Because they, the type two folks can can have many of the same complaints where their pain is beyond the distribution of that particular nerve. So, for example, in the twenty three year old that I saw this morning, she her pain primarily is in the distribution of the superficial fibular nerve, which is front of the calf, top of the foot. But she also had pain medially towards the arch. So there is a branch of the superficial fibula that can reach that particular zone, but that's also a zone where there's some crossover between the tibial nerve and even the saphenous nerve, which is a totally different branch. So the diagnostic blocks are extremely important because they can help you isolate which branches are involved and help you uh, determine whether someone has really got a more global problem happening to their peripheral nervous system, or is this truly uh, you know, nerve-specific, one or two nerves that are really the, the pain generator. But you can have those patients that you've identified that 90% of their pain got better, but they still got pain elsewhere. Um, and so that's really more of a CRPS type 1 tendency. Um, but what I've found in the past is if we address the, the pain generators that are the primary pain generators, most of the time those patients get enough pain relief that they can they, they can treat it on their own with, with simple anti-inflammatories and maybe Tylenol. So... You know, I think those folks are clearly better off once we've identified the, the vast majority, uh, the main pain generators. But it's, you know, it's a multifactorial syndrome. You know, some of these people can develop something called centralization of pain, where they start getting some plasticity of their central nervous system, the brain and spinal cord. And those changes become much more resistant to, to treatment. You know, I think pharmacologically, some of the things that, that are being used um, there's a drug called paracoxib. Uh, there's some studies that show it can be helpful in CRPS1 and CRPS2. Uh, some randomized controlled trials that show that that's helpful. Uh, there's another study where they looked at uh, tapering doses of 
prednisone, 40 milligrams a day, um, and then tapering that off. <clears throat> but I, I think some of these studies have shown that there really isn't a good supporting um, evidence to say that NSAIDs by themselves are a good treatment for CRPS, uh, which is too bad. So non-steroidals, it's been limited. And I think some of these studies have shown that it's, that it's not, not ex- exceptionally helpful. Yeah, it, I think a lot of folks are, are focusing on inflammatory markers that you can look at uh, to, to, to really see what's going on. And people have CRPS1 and CRPS2. And there's some studies that show vitamin C uh, for prevention after an injury uh, may have some help. Yeah, I think the there was a meta-analysis done where they looked at three separate randomized placebo-controlled trials of 500 milligrams of vitamin C per day for 50 days, and they found that it decreased the one-year risk of CRPS after a risk fracture. So if you knew someone who had a risk fracture, one of the easiest things you can do is get them on 500 milligrams of vitamin C for, for, for a couple of months, and you're going to diminish their chances of developing CRPS apparently. So um, I, you know, we try to do that with our ankle sprain patients and with our other seemingly benign injury patients who might be women who may have a, may be treated for anxiety issues, um, might be kind of type A a little bit, a little high strung. You know, I, again, I'm painting with a broad brush, but those are the folks that seem to be more susceptible to this. And so if you can put them on something simple like vitamin C and, and ward it off, boy, that's, that's a, that's a simple thing with very few side effects that you can do. Um, mm-hmm. And then physical rehab is really important. I think rehab after an injury, getting people moving, getting them moving the part um, is really, really crucial. Just immobilizing people for three or four months uh, is is a risk factor, sorry, risk factor all by itself. So what's the science behind um, giving uh, the folks that have the injury vitamin C, how does that affect them, uh, their bodies in that way, the healing process? I mean, I don't think they fully know. I mean, I think this is, this was a particular study that was done several years ago where they looked at it and they statistically significant that they were able to show that that it had a potential ability to ward off CRPS. So if CRPS is happening in five or six uh, out of a hundred thousand people, but then you look at risk fractures specifically, and it's hap- CRPS is happening in maybe 25 or 30% of those folks, that's a huge difference. That's a population that is highly susceptible. So I think risk factors in s- specifically are, are uh, there's a greater risk for developing CRPS. And so I think in that population, it's a really smart thing to do. Wow, nice. Wow, that's amazing. And opioids, really, this is interesting. So opioids are kind of a second-line treatment for neuropathic or or nerve-related pain, but they don't work very well for that. But their (laughs) their effectiveness hasn't really been established for CRPS. And so I think getting people on opioids and and, uh, where there's a fairly significant chance of of addiction in some folks, psychological addiction, um, typically if you're taking opioids for pain, you won't become addicted. I mean, that's that's really kind of an important thing to realize. If you start taking them for other reasons, uh, because of uh, you know the particular high that you might get, or for people who are using them uh, recreationally, then the addiction rates can go up. So I think that's that's not a good idea. Uh, the things like gabapentin you may be familiar with uh, is is helpful for nerve related pain. Pregabalin is another drug. It's also known as Lyrica. 
Um, those can be helpful with some neuropathic pain syndromes. Uh, there have been some studies uh, using them in CRPS type 1 patients, but I think they uh, some of these concluded that the pain relief just wasn't very significant for gabapentin in those folks. Uh, but they did seem to have a greater reduction in, in sensory deficit. So some of those folks that were having numbness, it, it may have helped with some of that. But there's still no evidence, uh, good evidence on on Lyrica or carbamazepine or even dilantin in CRPS patients. I think they're looking at vasodilators, things that are going to open up blood vessels uh, to help with some of those folks to inhibit some of that sympathetic pain. The sympathetic nervous system you know, uh, controls the opening and closing of your blood vessels. And so when somebody who's got chronic swelling and a red swollen limb, you know, there's, a, there, there's clearly a sympathetic component to that. And so they've looked at using these blockers that control that like clonidine um, that you can get in a patch uh, to help hyperalgesia or that over uh, the, the over expected response to pain. And there's probably some evidence out there that, that shows that that can be helpful uh, when you started, when it started in the chronic phase, but you know, there's just not a lot out there. You know, they've looked at all kinds of things, uh, behavioral modification, Getting good psychological or psychiatric um, help along the way is really helpful. Physical rehab, uh, physical therapy is really helpful. Uh, keeping people moving. Desensitization, if it's a particular part of the foot that is that is starting to show signs of CRPS, getting people to touch that part and massage it uh, to prevent them from uh, be, allowing this limb to just become this stiff, swollen mess. Uh, it's really important because uh, once it gets to that point, it's really hard to treat. I see. And that's very important to get moving around. Yes. Now, um, can you explain to us how um, you can go into your perioperative protocols to calm the per uh, peripheral nervous system at surgery time? Sure. Yeah, I think that's an important I mean, thing to consider. Um, one of the worst things you can do, I think, with CRPS patients is just do what you typically do for someone who doesn't have CRPS. So I think you have to treat them differently. Uh, so one of the things that we do is, is we'll actually use a cocktail of 600 milligrams of Celebrex, which is also known as Celecoxib, uh, two hours before surgery. They'll take 600 milligrams of gabapentin two hours before surgery uh, with a small sip of water. And then we'll consider with the anesthesia team the use of ketamine. And ketamine is a unique anesthetic in that it's a disassociative anesthetic. So it's it's sort of disassociating the the brain from the from the pain. Uh, it's kind of blocking that commingling. And it's really helpful in pediatric surgeries. Uh, it's great. And and in patients who have chronic nerve pain, uh, including CRPS. It can be really helpful at avoiding a flare of their CRPS. So if you think about what we're dealing with, these are patients who've had some sort of, usually some sort of injury, sometimes even the most benign thing, like, again, like a sprain, but clearly they've had some sort of injury and surgery could just fire all that up. I mean, surgery is an injury. It's a controlled injury. So the last thing we want to do is cause an acute flare of somebody's CRPS. So even if we're operating on them for something like, a, let's say they've got a bunion and the bunion's killing them, but they have a history of CRPS, we'll consider this same cocktail 
uh, preoperatively and then using ketamine as our anesthetic agent. And, and we've, so thus far, it, it's, it's eliminated uh, CRPS flares in those patients who would be susceptible. Uh, so if, if the patient already has a history of it, we're definitely gonna, gonna try to use that, that, uh, that approach with our anesthesia team uh, to avoid firing things up. I see. Now, um, how long have you been a CRPS um, resource in the um, CRPS Warriors Foundation? I actually just found out about them through another colleague who does peripheral nerve surgery as well, uh, Peter Bregman, who's in Las Vegas. Yes. Yeah, and Peter and I have known each other quite a while. Um, We're both a part of a peripheral nerve group called the Association of Extremity Nerve Surgeons, which is a unique group of plastic surgeons, uh, other foot and ankle uh, surgeons who have really dedicated a significant part of their practice to peripheral nerve uh, incident, uh, peripheral nerve uh, injuries and pain. So that that's kind of how I, how I came apart. This uh, came about uh, getting to know the CRPS warriors. Uh, but I've been involved with treating CRPS patients since 1996. Uh, oh. That was my first foray into treating these patients. Was with uh, an attending in my residency, uh, Nick Grumbine. Nick Grumbine. Nicholas Grumbine was a, a foot and ankle surgeon in California. Uh, he has unfortunately passed away. Uh, he he had all kinds of complications from diabetes and and is no longer with us. But he was a resource for patients back in the 70s and 80s uh, who had no other options. And he had some interesting theories about treating these folks. And and I think some of his work in this area was effective. Uh, some of it I don't think panned out. But he was kind of known for this uh, protocol that he had come up with for helping to calm down acute um, acute CRPS attacks and getting these folks to turn around. And, and so, so yeah, I mean, it, it's been uh, several decades. Uh, it's certainly not something that I see a, a, a ton of because I just think, again, it's a fairly rare problem. But, but through my work with the AENS, and hopefully, yeah, now with uh, the CRPS lawyers, more folks will find it easier to find us. Um, and, you know, I can't help everybody. Uh, there's just uh, no two ways about it. Um, but I think if we can identify if there is a peripheral nerve injury driving this, then I think there are several things that we can do uh, to help this. Uh, Lee Dellen is a, a plastic surgeon out of Hopkins who just retired. Um, I'm outlasting all these guys. Starting that's when you know you're old when your, men, <laughs> your mentors are all retiring around you left and right. But uh, Lee wrote a paper. This is it. Boy, it's at least 20 or 25 years old now. Um, where he was describing his thoughts on CRPS, probably written similar right around the time when when the terminology was changing from RSD and causalgia to CRPS type one and CRPS type two. And, and he was, again, I think another guy who was convinced that, that this second category, the CRPS2 patients, were sometimes being miscategorized, that they truly had a nerve injury, and that surgically we had an option to intervene if we could control uh, all the other factors, meaning make sure that, that we had our ducks in a row with our pain management folks, that we had some sort of protocol to try to prevent what we're doing from making everything worse. But he felt that those folks could be benefited by 
neurolysis or decompression of those nerves uh, are you know, at least identifying that this was a pain generator. This particular nerve was a pain generator for this patient. And to what extent you can do that with diagnostic blocks where you're using just local anesthetic, like we talked about with my patient from today. So Lee wrote, wrote a, there's very few papers about surgical treatment for CRPS, but he's got one of them and I refer to it often with patients and I'm trying to get him to read it. So now how do you, uh, what is your goal in becoming a uh, CRPS Warriors Foundation resource? You know, um, you shared with us about your book, you're an author and the podcast that you have. Um, what is, what are your other goals that you hope to achieve? I think simply uh, providing a resource for folks that may want to um, investigate their particular version of CRPS a little further, uh, you know, particularly for the lower extremity, because clearly that's, I'm a lower extremity specialist. So, you know, this is more common in the upper extremity, but I have, you know, access to several really good uh, hand surgeons, upper extremity surgeons that I'm trying to convince uh, that, that this really is a legitimate use of their expertise, because um, I think that's still operating on these folks in some circles is still controversial, which is unfortunate, because um, I truly think if you can identify that there's a, a, a specific nerve pain generator, then, then there's, there's options. So, um, yeah, I just want to be a resource to try to help those folks that might want to look into this more. If, if we do the diagnostic blocks and we don't particularly feel that there's a specific nerve injury involved, uh, you know, then, then I think their best approach would be to continue to work with their pain management folks, uh, continue to treat this medically with physical rehab, with uh, psychological care, and, and manage it in a more, you know, much in a comprehensive approach. But if we do identify, let's just say it's 20% of the people that we see that they specifically have a very easily identifiable, specific, you know, nerve injury, and then, we, then we've got options. We can decompress the nerve, we can wrap the nerve, we can protect it. And I think we've been very successful in the, the limited um, number of patients that we've operated on. We've been very, very specific about who we're operating on. This is, there is no, no way that a shotgun approach is, is going to improve your outcomes. So uh, for the folks that we see, you know, we're, ver- we're working them up in a very specific and comprehensive way so that we are only operating on patients that we really believe in, in a very uh, high percentage chance that we've got uh, to improve their situation. Not make- I see. Now, for those uh, folks that are listening, if they want to check out your book, your book is called Saving Limbs, Saving Lives. Advanced Treatments for Preventing Amputations in Diabetic Populations. And of course, um, we're gonna, we already will be checking out your podcast. So that's available on all um, streaming uh, podcast apps. Is that correct? Absolutely. And the uh, YouTube version is the actual uh, videos that we're, that we're taking at the same time. So in other words, most of what we have offered are essentially my partner and I uh, going through a PowerPoint presentation with some visuals, usually uh, medical diagrams, uh, so it's not it's not gross. It won't freak people out. Um, <laughs> but then we also have our surgical videos up as well, if you're interested in that. And so the, all that is available. You can get the, the audio on Spotify and uh, Apple and and everywhere you get your podcast. But the the video f- format I think is really helpful too, because a lot of what we're doing is describing. 
uh, x-rays. We're describing, again, the anatomic diagrams to talk about a lot of these particular issues. And I think we have almost 60 shows up now um, about all kinds of foot and ankle related topics. Very nice. Mm -hmm. And what's your YouTube channel? We want to be sure that we let the people know how they can find you on YouTube. Uh, it's essentially just find us the same way. It's the pod, it's the pod doctors with okay. Dr. Dauphiné and Dr. Hussein. So there, the, the pod doctors, there is a Dr. Dr. Who um, uh, fan group <laughs> that has the, a very similar uh, podcast. And so it's Dr. Who, the, the, the British uh, TV show that's been on for 30 years or whatever it is. Okay. So uh, yeah, d- don't get confused. Uh, so <laughs> we, we, there's a cartoon uh, version of myself and my partner, and it says Pod Doctors. So our logo is very specific. So hopefully people can find us that way. But uh, when, you, when you just do a Google search, sometimes that Doctor Who podcast pops up, uh, <laughs> which is called Pod Doctors for some reason. But anyway, yeah. So that, to not cause any confusion, yours is the Pod Doctors, and it's a little cartoon a uh, yes. character uh, picture of you and your partner on there. Yeah. Correct. Okay, yeah. good. Not, not the cat in the hat. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> now, if folks want to reach you, they can find you. Um, I'm going to give your website address, www.completefootandanklecare.com. Again, this is Dam- Dr. Damien Daphne. He is from the Complete Foot and Ankle Care of North Texas out of Denton. Please stay tuned for the trailer for the CRPS Warriors Foundation on their docu-series trailer, which is called The Unseen Pain. That'll be released on their three-year anniversary on May 28th on their YouTube channel, which is at CRPS Warriors Foundation, as well as the media website, which is Next Life's Media. Life is L-Y-F-E. So check that out. And next on the CRPS Warriors Foundation series, we're going to be talking with Brittany Somerville. She is a CRPS caretaker, and that will be airing Saturday, June 3rd at 8 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time on all major streaming platforms. Dr. Daphne, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate your knowledge. And um, this has been mind blowing. You know, I didn't know the difference between type one and type two. So we appreciate you um, coming on our podcast and check out his podcast, The Pod Doctors. Yes. Thank you very <laughs> Thank much. You I appreciate time. the time. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Mike and Phoebe Show on Alternative Twist Radio. If you missed any past episodes, just search The Mike and Phoebe Show or Alternative Twist Radio on any major podcast app.